This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about structured settlements from experts across the U.S. Ringler Associates, celebrating 35 years of successfully helping injured people and their families. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and we're certainly glad you could join us again today. We're broadcasting live from the Ringler Associates 2011 annual meeting in beautiful Newport Beach, California, and after being in the mighty snowy northeast for the last week and a half, I can say it's quite a nice respite. Ringler Radio brings you the hottest topics and the most knowledgeable guests from the structured settlement industry. And you can find every Ringler Radio show on our website, ringlerassociates.com, or on the Legal Talk Network at legaltalknetwork.com. Well, we're here today to talk about something very important to everyone in the litigation world, and that's the subject of ethics, and more specifically, the ethics of structured settlements for lawyers and mediators. And joining me today as my co-host is my Ringler colleague, Teddy Snyder. Teddy is a settlement annuity specialist in the Beverly Hills Ringler office and brings a unique perspective and creativity to designing, presenting, and negotiating structured settlements. As an attorney, she has more than 20 years of litigation experience, including more than 100 trials. That's pretty impressive, Teddy. Welcome to Ringler Radio. Thanks, Larry. And our special guest today is Seth Davis. Seth is a private mediator and the sole proprietor of ADJ Mediation Services in Woodland Hills, California. As a private mediator, Seth serves on the Los Angeles County Superior Court ADR panel, is a Beverly Hills Small Claims Court mediator, and is on the mediator panel for Resolute Systems. He's also an arbitrator with the Mandatory Free Arbitration Program for the San Fernando Valley, Los Angeles, Beverly Hills, and the California Bar Associations. You sound like a very busy man, Seth. Every welcome, now and again. Thank you, Larry. Welcome to Ringler Radio, too. Well, let's get started, Seth, with uh, kind of a review for our audience. And what are the applicable ethical rules that we're really talking about here? Sure. Thank you, Larry. Uh, the American Bar Association model rules of professional conduct, and I believe this is true in all the states as well, have two provisions which apply to this context. Section 1.1 deals with competence. It states, a lawyer shall provide competent representation to a client. Competent representation requires the legal knowledge, skill, thoroughness, and preparation reasonably necessary for the representation. The second principle that applies is Rule 1.4, which is communications. This rule requires a lawyer to keep the client informed about the litigation and consult with the client on the course of the litigation, including settlement. The rule requires that a lawyer shall explain a matter to the extent reasonably necessary to permit the client to make an informed decision regarding the representation. Rule 1.0 requires that lawyers have communicated adequate information and explanation about the material risks of reasonably available alternatives. Explanation of all the reasonably available alternatives and the risks of those choices is pivotal. Beyond this, there are the issues of civility and honesty and communication, and of course, not to mention just being plain old polite, and of course, the golden rule. Well, the golden rule is certainly important, and I, I sense from this that uh, there's a lot of logical logical comments you're making here about professional conduct, communication especially to the, to the clients, and I find uh, oftentimes that clients or claimants uh, will tell me that 
their lawyers ha hasn't communicated an offer, for example. So, so these ethical rules are very important. I'm glad you spelled them out. Teddy, let's talk about how this plays out in a negotiation or mediation. When you're asked to prepare a structured settlement proposal, what information do you typically include so that the attorney can meet these requirements that uh, Seth just talked about? Well, Larry, a typical proposal will show cash up front, which right. is going to be paid right away. And, you know, sometimes I don't have all the information, but if I have it, I break that out according to what's going into the plaintiff's own pocket, what's going for attorney's fees, what's going to liens, mm -hmm. and then the periodic payments. And that would include everything to be paid out in the future. And then um, there would, in most cases, probably be a column showing how much it cost to buy the structured settlement. Now, in years past, that was really an issue for we, a lot of people. We remember it well when they said you can't disclose the cost and all those issues. So how do you deal, how do you deal with that today? Well, I think that, that that viewpoint that maybe that disclosure triggered constructive receipt has pretty much gone by the wayside. Yeah, I agree. And, and there, I think there's some psychological reasons in that claimant's eyes do literally go to the bottom line. And so you might want to communicate the cost either verbally or even if you just wrote, hand wrote the number on the printed proposal in a corner or something, you could still disclose it without having that cost column if somebody's worried that there's a psychological problem in getting people focused on how much they're going to get. But I don't really see any uh, long-term benefit in in not doing that. And I think that uh, communicating everything requires disclosure of that information. Well, I don't think there's any question. And I think the uh, the biggest issue in, in that is credibility. The credibility you have when you present a proposal with a cost on it, first of all, it shows you're not hiding anything. You don't have that psychological impact. Plus, you're credible uh, in that you're proposing and you're laying all the, the chips on the table. I think that's much more important and trumps any of this uh, issue about maybe not not letting or not wanting the other side to know the cost. Well, uh, Seth, what do you do if the defense counsel wants to bring in a proposal without the cost disclosure? Uh, Larry, actually, you've touched on a, on a couple of those issues. Um, I think an mediation cannot be successful without a measure of trust in the mediator and between the parties. In general, I would perform any reasonable request that a party would ask. However, I would dissuade a refusal to disclose the cost of the defense of a structured settlement proposal to defense counsel. Uh, this could create a trust issue. The perception from the plaintiff's perspective is that the defense is hiding the true cost of the annuity. Since it's going to have to be closed at some point, why not do it sooner and eliminate this potential negative perception? Well, plus there's another issue. It is, isn't it the, the concept of if you were going to be presented with a structured settlement, wouldn't you want to know what the cost was? How could you possibly make a decision without knowing whether the value of the case was appropriate to how you thought the case was going to settle? You're, you're, you're absolutely right? correct. And, and you mentioned before that the, the eye immediately gravitates towards that bottom line, and everybody is always interested in that bottom line. Usually when I present a structured settlement proposal to the plaintiff, uh, and in, for instance, if the defense uh, is the only one who, who brought a, um, a broker with them, I inform the plaintiff of this, and I indicate that there will be numerous proposals uh, for the settlement funds. I emphasize that the broker is independent and has no interest in favoring one side or the other, and is there to make the best use of the money for the plaintiff. I inform the plaintiff that a variety of funding options are available. In fact, I encourage a structured settlement broker uh, to be introduced to all parties early on so that the broker can listen to the needs of the plaintiff and create a financial plan to meet those specific needs. Well, let me ask you about that. When, when you're in the process of the mediation, uh, sometimes I would assume the defense broker asks whether they can be taken into the other room to explain 
you know, the nuances of the structure, maybe some of the specifics that may not be as, as you know, self-evident. Do you typically try to make that happen? I, I would always try to make that happen. And th- it's usually discouraged in mediation, especially when you're dealing with sensitive personal injury cases, to have a, a an initial joint session. Mediations tend to now begin with individual caucuses. If a mediation begins with an individual caucus, I would encourage the defense to have me immediately introduce the broker, the structured settlement broker uh, to the plaintiff's side and to any other parties that uh, are at the mediation. You know, you, you raise another, another good point. Uh, we've done these mediations, Teddy, you and I, for years and years, and, and a lot of times there were these joint sessions where there were some contentious comments across the table and, and things got off on the wrong foot by defense and plaintiff. And now I agree. I think you're seeing the trend go away, but the the problem with that is that where we would normally be introduced in that formal uh, joint session, oftentimes we don't even see the other side for a period of time. And if you're saying that you want to make sure that someone like the structure broker gets introduced to that side. That's a very, that's a plus. That's a that's a good thing. Y- yes, it is, and I, I will bring them in as soon as I, I possibly can. Usually in the first or second meeting with the plaintiff. Great. Now, Teddy, uh, what do you what about when you propose and set a proposal into the other side? Do you disclose the identity of the life company and its rating and the overall rate of return? What about those issues? They're a little different than just the cost itself. Right, and sometimes we get questions about those, and if we get any questions, I'm happy to to disclose those things. Quite promptly. Right. And, and absolutely. Again, it's it's going to have to be disclosed at some point. So why not do it sooner th- uh, than later and wait around to the 11th hour? Exactly. You know, it's it's the old issue. We talked about it before. No one wants to hide the ball or be accused of having uh, hidden the ball. And uh, what one of the things I always like to tell the other side is we are quoting right now with company X because we need to, to do one company to make this thing work. But we'll test the market later on and talk about other companies. So that's a big plus as well. Uh, what about multiple proposals? Teddy, what are the eth- ethical issues uh, when there are multiple proposals going into the room, different types of plans? Some people might say, well, is that confusing the other side? H- how, what is the ethics of, sh- of showing different ideas? Well, I think that it's very important to show different ideas. And, and all of us here have talked about multiple proposals. But the ethical issue that I've seen is sometimes on the defense side, People get confused as to whose decision it is. And claims people and defense counsel sometimes will look at a range of proposals which I've created and they'll say, oh, no, that one's not good. This one's good. Do it this way. Don't do it that way. And then they only want to send in one. Well, the ethical issue I think here is whether that's an improper substitution of the presenter's view for the claimant having all the information necessary to make an informed decision, and then the claimant exercising their own judgment. Not to send in all of the proposals that the broker has created, I think, improperly withholds information Although, from Although the there is probably a, a fine line between overwhelming the other side with too many options, too many ideas, and maybe narrowing it down. I, the way I like to address it is I say, let's give them chocolate and vanilla. And hope that they eat the ice cream, you know. I don't want to have 32 flavors because there's too many to choose from. I can't even choose when I'm literally getting ice cream if there's too many flavors in the box. Right. Another thing that happens sometimes is the defense will ask for specific kinds of proposals, but the broker who... I like to say my experience is an inch wide and an acre deep. We know what kind of proposals are most likely to fly. And it is important that that proposal goes in because it is the one 
based on our experience, that is most likely to satisfy the needs of the claimant. Well, Seth, how do you deal with that? And what Teddy's bringing up is an interesting ethical, I think, question, and that is the defense attorney or the defense claimant, uh, a claim person, might have their own ideas about what should go in, and yet we have, let's say, the expertise based on the situation to maybe want to do a different way. Uh, Obviously, we typically do what our client wants us to do, but there is, isn't there an ethical consideration on our part to raise that issue with them and say, you know, you might want it that way, but that's not the most efficient or, or best way to propose it? There's an ethical uh, consideration for that, but there's also a real-life uh, approach to it. Uh, the real benefit, uh, in my experience, with multiple proposals at, at a mediation is to get everyone's creativity uh, flowing. Seeing different ways that the payout can be scheduled uh, gets people thinking about what the plaintiff's real needs are and how to structure the settlement dollars to meet those specific needs. One structure does not fit all. No, not at all. You're right. The real benefit of having the broker there is the opportunity to respond to the individual's needs um, and their spontaneous statements and to create a personalized plan. There should be no doubt in anyone's mind that the broker is there to get the best benefit for the plaintiff from the available funding dollars. Well, you're absolutely correct on that. And now let's talk about the, the plaintiff attorney's responsibilities. What are the duties of the plaintiff attorney regarding advising the plaintiff when they've been offered a structured settlement? I mean, this is the biggest issue. You, we oftentimes hear, Seth, that we'll give the mediator a, a proposal, they'll go in the other room, and uh, we, you know, we, we hear later that they never even showed it to the, uh, the plaintiff attorney, never showed it to the client. So how, how do you deal with all that? What well, are the on responsibilities? On your last statement, that's why it's good to have the broker with you yes. so your, your broker can be your own witness. Sure. But there, there are several um, areas where, where I think that the, the plaintiff attorney needs to um, educate themselves more on. Uh, one is understanding risk and reward. Uh, besides all the usual risks in going to trial, including delays, uh, and especially the risk of relinquishing control of the outcome of a case to 12 strangers with a driver's license, which is also known as a jury, <laughs> um, there's also the time value of money. An amount of money, say $300,000 today and $300,000 in a few years, does not have the same value. When money is being paid over an extended period of time, investment income earned in the earliest years of a stream of periodic payments has the effect of enlarging all the payments due to the power of compounding. A settlement now could result in much more money uh, to the claimant than a larger verdict la- later in the future. And. You know, I have to say, gentlemen, I've had this experience in a number of cases, and typically it involves minors because the statute of limitations can be like 15 years or even more away, and so nobody seems to see any rush. So I had one, it was an eye-out case for a minor, and the policy in that case of $350,000 was offered, Mm -hmm. and... um, I think the kid was 12 at the time, and we could have gotten a payout of over a million dollars. And then five years later, the claim had still not settled. The kid was on the brink of turning 18, and now it would be impossible to duplicate that return. And right. and the plaintiff's side was just like so lackadaisical, and the attorney claimed, oh, this was a different case actually, where, oh... There's another potential defendant who we knew had no insurance. Everybody knew had no insurance. But the attorney said he had to do his due diligence. And we couldn't see that he was doing anything. And while he was doing his, quote, unquote, due diligence... 
Time was ticking. Time was ticking. The time value of money was diminishing the amount that the plaintiff could get. So I think it's really important for attorneys on both sides of the table to get an understanding of what is the time value of money and to promote if you're the defense or evaluate if you're on the plaintiff side, evaluate those offers with time value of money in mind. No question. And a related issue is understanding the tax consequences of settlement to the plaintiff. Some plaintiff attorneys tell me that they have in their retainer agreement that they don't provide tax advice. Quite frankly, uh, I really don't think that this gets them off the hook. Uh, There are tax consequences to settlement and not competently dealing with them, I, I really do believe is a breach of ethics. Minimally, the attorney has to recognize the issue, particularly with the unsophisticated plaintiff. They need to steer them or get them the proper advice giver. A proper advice giver is one who understands how a structured settlement works. Not all accountants and financial planners do. The broker is actually the one with the most in-depth knowledge of the tax ramifications of different types of settlements. The financial advisor can consult with the structured settlement broker on the case to get more information. And we, we, we do that constantly. We, we talk to financial uh, advisors on the other side. But you're right. Uh, and most plaintiff attorneys have the experience of knowing that their clients, prior clients, have either blown cash settlements or not taken advantage of the tax-free aspects. And you would think that they would learn to be able to apply those uh, life lessons to their future clients. And I think that's a a good point. They always have to be aware of the tax consequences. What about the whole area of public benefits? Right. Now, you bring up a a very interesting point, uh, especially nowadays with our population getting older. Um, The the other issue is public benefits, Uh, public benefits um, that the plaintiff may be receiving. This could include supplemental security income, Medicaid, Medi-Cal, and Medicare, and even such benefits as 8A housing. There is a well-known Texas legal malpractice case um, in Ray Christina Guerrero, where it was alleged that the plaintiff's attorney had not conveyed the structured settlement offer uh, to his client, Ms. Guerrero. The plaintiff took all the cash, and consequently lost Medicaid benefits, which was of much greater value to her than the actual cash settlement. In that case, believe it or not, there was a seven-figure settlement of that legal malpractice action. There are many ways to use a structured settlement, sometimes combined with a trust to preserve the plaintiff's ongoing access to public benefits. Like the special needs trust. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The attorney has a professional duty to recognize that issue and properly advise his client which could include bringing in additional professionals, such as a structured settlement broker or a trust attorney. Well, what about uh, other issues that would ethically require a plaintiff's attorney to explore the use of a structured settlement? For example, we talked about it a minute ago, the concept of when most claimants get cash, even though they're, you know, well-meaning, that money tends to go a lot more quickly. What, what's the ethical consideration of a plaintiff counsel in that regard? Sure, yeah. T- typically, when, when somebody does receive a large a chunk of money, they they will spend it rather quickly. Uh, but there is a, a, another area of, of ethical of ethical issues that the plaintiff attorney needs to be aware of, um, and that is to prevent premature dissipation of the plaintiff's funds. Certainly, where the attorney knows that his or her client is a drug or gambling addict, or has a mental disability which would prevent proper money management, it makes sense to bring in a structured settlement uh, broker to create a plan. Even when there isn't such an extreme situation, ethical practice should include a knowledgeable explanation to the client of the structured settlement option. So what we're really talking about here is that ethical duty of competence, of really understanding everything, and of communication to being able to 
knowledgeably communicated, and I would certainly encourage the attorneys in our audience to look at those sections of their state ethics codes and look at some of the comments in the cases. In fact, you don't need the extreme situation like Seth was talking about um, to appreciate the value the structured settlement brings to the claimant. Most people really underestimate the rates of return, and that's due to the power of compounding. So the attorney advising the claimant would really be best advised to consult the structured settlement broker to create proposals for the plaintiff's review. And remember, there is absolutely no fee to anyone for that service. There's no obligation to to go forward with it. So it, it's like uh, a win-win. There's no way the plaintiff's attorney would lose out by bringing in this expertise. Uh, no question about that. And you're right about uh, people underestimate the rate of return. They don't quite. They don't quite sense the value that they're getting. And a lot of it has to do with skepticism, but also a lot of it has to do with maybe they're getting fed advice from uh, the brother-in-law who's the stockbroker. So there are other aspects here that are impacting decision-making. And you as the mediator, Seth, I'm sure, knowing all that, uh, how often do you actually sit and counsel the claimant in the other room uh, when they when when they say to you, for example, my brother-in-law is a stockbroker and I, he he's got other ideas for the money, are you are you advocating that they at least explore more closely the structure? Um, as far as counseling the the claimant in, in the other room, uh, a mediator's job is not so much to to counsel them, but to bring to their attention all the possible options and ramifications of a particular offer that that is on the table. Um, and, and I think it's important to bring in written offers to the plaintiff um, in, in their caucus room. Obviously, in order for the plaintiff attorney to make or, or to explain all the terms and conditions of a structured offer, they need to go over the written plan with the client in detail. Yep. Um, I make sure that the plaintiff sees the plan and also that the written offer stays with the plaintiff to review and compare with subsequent offers as the mediation continues. Uh, sometimes I'll bring in the broker to explain the plan to the plaintiff. Um, and, and to counsel and to answer any questions that may have. And again, I continue to go back to the broker because I, I do believe in some of the larger exposure cases, especially where there are periodic payments involved, that the, the structured settlement broker is the expert and you should go to that expert uh, during the course of the mediation. Well, that's that's good to hear because, you know, we a lot, there are a lot of lawyers that do and mediators that do take uh, into consideration the fact that we've done so many of these that we have something to add that, that's somewhat even-handed in our approach to try to help educate those people. So let's take a quick break right now, and we'll be right back with more on the ethics of structured settlements with our guests, Teddy Steiner and Seth Davis. This is Ringler Radio from Ringler Associates. Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for 35 years. Ringler Radio is celebrating its sixth year right here on the Legal Talk Network, produced by broadcast professionals. Ringler Associates, the only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to ringlerassociates.com or legaltalknetwork.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to all parties involved in the settling of physical injury claims. Experience counts. Over $23 billion in structures benefiting 166,000 injured individuals and their families and one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. 
Did you know you can download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to the Legal Talk Network. It's free. Did you know Ringler Radio is one of the top three rated shows in iTunes? Thanks to all of our listeners who download all the Ringler Radio shows. We invite you to listen to other shows on the Legal Talk Network. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. I'm your host, Larry Cohen. Glad you could join us. I'm here with Seth Davis, the founder of ADJ Mediation Services in Woodland Hills, California, and my Ringler Associates colleague, Teddy Snyder from Los Angeles. Our topic is the ethics and structured settlements. So let's continue the conversation by discussing a couple of other issues that are important to the, to the topic. Uh, Seth, how important is it for mediators to bring a written offer? I think we've touched on it briefly, but I think there's some special rules and on the ethical side of things that our audience ought to hear. The concept of bringing a written offer to the plaintiffs in the other room. Sure, and I'll, I'll have Teddy discuss the the ethical part of it, but bringing in a piece of paper with the structured settlement to the plaintiff and to the um, plaintiff's counsel, I think is very important. Uh, the typical person needs to have something to touch, and they're, they're very visual. So having that in front of them, I think, really does help them quite a bit. Good, I, I agree with that. I think lawyers need to really look at what the ethical rules are in their jurisdiction In California, for example, there are different rules that apply as to whether the offer is in writing, in which case it must be, all the terms must be explained to the plaintiff every time, versus uh, a verbal offer, in which case the plaintiff attorney only has to pass it on if he deems it significant. If you on the defense side think just even making a settlement offer is significant, which actually is the view I favor, then you have to put it in writing to make sure it gets communicated. And frankly, for mediators... I have seen some mediators, they don't leave the written offer with the plaintiffs. They don't always take it in. And I, if, that, if I see that happen, I always ask for them to take it back because, as we've indicated, there's a psychological advantage in having that piece of paper with the numbers in front of the plaintiff so they can look at it and they can consider it. And, and if their advisor, their, their counsel says to them, well, you know, it's, it's too low, then that's important for them to know too, but at least they have yeah. that to consider. Yeah. Now, Seth, let me let me let me follow up on that just a second for, from your perspective. Oftentimes, I'll have mediators say it's too early to, to put the structured settlement on the other side of the table. The offer isn't at a significant enough level to to pique the interest of the other side. We're at too wide a gap, and they would recommend that mediator recommend that we wait a few moves down the road before that happens. I happen to concur that there, there, there are times when it doesn't make a lot of sense to bring the, the structure right away. What is your philosophy on that? No mediation is the same, no, as in no case is the same. And that does happen quite a bit. There might be a, a, a time to bring a written proposal in, like you said, uh, two or three uh, exchanges later. But I do want to come back to, in, in the very beginning, 
to explain to plaintiff's counsel and their client that there is a broker there. And so, they will be seeing proposals. And they will be seeing yeah. proposals, so they're not all of a sudden surprised yes. when we do believe that it's the right time to present that offer, all of a sudden they're handed a three-page proposal and yes. they're wondering where this came well, from. That, that's a good, I think it's a very good policy to follow. Now, Seth, let me talk now about, I think, one of the biggest issues in this whole area of ethics, uh, more than anything I think we've talked about so far, and that is that you'll sometimes have a casualty carrier who says that this case, if it's going to settle, has to settle with a structured settlement, the insistence upon it. Uh, how do you introduce that to the other side of the, of, the, of, the, of the table, and what are your feelings about the ethics of that? Well, it's the job of the mediator to bring in the offer or demand that the party has formulated. Uh, it's not my job to substitute my idea of what the offer is or what the offer should be. Mm -hmm. If the defense is telling me that the carrier must have a portion of the settlement placed in an annuity with XYZ company, then that's the information that I need to convey to uh, the plaintiff's room. Uh, the other side can accept or reject or even counter that offer. The mediator, it's not my job to rearrange the terms of an offer or rearrange the terms of a demand. Part of my job is to keep those negotiations moving forward. So long as there's money being offered back and forth in any format and from any carrier, uh, the negotiations will continue until the parties reach a resolution. So that, that essentially is whatever keeps the ball rolling is important. But, but Teddy... I'm sure you might have clients that, that are saying that this case is going to settle with the structure. From your ethical perspective, from the perspective of ethics in the process, do you have a problem with that or is that is that you see part of the negotiation process and, and, and perfectly permissible? Well, I have to agree with, with Seth. I'm not there if if I'm hearing something from the defense and they say they have to have it a certain way, then... It isn't my job to substitute. I can advise them. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll say to them, well, with this amount of money on the table, a an appropriate amount to suggest a structure might be X, as opposed to perhaps they've suggested something which maybe is not so appropriate. Well, you know, the concept of suggesting is one thing, but insisting is another. So that's that's so, it. So that, the insistence is the issue where sometimes I'll have mediators in certain jurisdictions set, say, we can't condition the settlement of this case upon the acceptance of a structured settlement. We can say you need to, you know, at least acknowledge that there could be a structured settlement or maybe entertain the concept of a structure, but not insist on it. What's the rule out here in California, for example, around that issue of insistence on a percentage or a piece of it being structured? It's not an ethical rule. It's a contract. It's a concept of the law of contracts. And as Seth pointed out, an offer is formatted a certain way, it can be accepted, it can be rejected, there can be a counter. But what I think is very important for any mediators who are listening is that an offer has certain terms and it is not up to the mediator, for example, to say, oh yeah, but they would pay that in cash because I've been in mediations like that. And in fact, that's not the offer and they wouldn't pay it in cash. Yeah, I hear you. That That's important. And you're right. There are, uh, there are some mediators that want to convert whatever is being said to make the thing a little easier so, on their behalf. So the, ethical, the yeah. ethical perspective of the mediator is that they should not substitute their idea of what the offer is for what has actually been offered. Well, well, well said. Seth, are there any duties in the, from the ethical standpoint towards the broker, the structured settlement broker? Tell us about that. Um, well, I, I think that if a, an attorney or a, or a client 
brings in a broker, it makes sense for that broker to continue to stay in the loop of the mediation and, and to not exclude the broker. There, there is no fee for the broker's services. Uh, he or she earns a commission when the structure is funded. Common courtesy uh, would seem to, in, to dictate that you allow that person to create proposals for presentation when the claim is ready to settle. Uh, similarly, you wouldn't ask a broker to provide a free service and then switch to another broker mid-case. During the course of the mediation, the, the, the broker pretty much sits on a, on a solid fence regarding ethics because they, they really don't have a dog in the fight. They, they want to see the case settled. They don't care uh, particularly if it's going to favor one side or the other. They want to see that money funded. And, and is, is it true that they're also responsible for signing that confidentiality document in the beginning of the mediation? They're also party to that process. So even though they're not lawyers or parties to the case, they have a they have a stake there, so they do have to sign that. Isn't that correct? A- a- absolutely. In, in California, and this is similar in, in many states, uh, mediations are strictly confidential. Any participant to the mediation, uh, that, that includes spouses, uh, children over the age of 18, and, and other professionals, such as a structured settlement broker, absolutely must sign that confidentiality statement. Uh, that's exactly correct. Uh, I guess every jurisdiction probably has that rule. I've seen it all over. Teddy, how does it work, and and what are the complicating factors when both sides have structured settlement brokers there? Is that a helpful thing, or is it? How do you find it uh, in your experience? Well, it actually can be helpful. What confuses some people is if they already have a broker, and then the other side brings a broker, they don't necessarily go back to their own broker to say, okay, what happens in this situation? There's some confusion, and this is a good opportunity to uh, dispel that confusion, which is if you have a broker, and then the other, you find out the other side has a broker, then you just tell the other side, well, then fine, have your broker, contact my broker. Then the brokers, it happens all the time, work out a cooperation agreement regarding the duties and the compensation, and as we've said now several times, there's still no cost to any party. Not at all. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. It's A lot of times you try to relate it to the real estate environment where, where typically both sides have their own broker. And in those instances where there are co-brokers, you know, most structured settlement brokers uh, who deal in this business every day uh, are very used, as you said, Teddy, to, to sharing things that, uh, on some basis. Good example. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, how about some final thoughts, uh, Seth? Uh, you've been doing this for a while. Uh, you've seen a lot of cases come to your to your office. Give us some final thoughts on the, on the ethics in the, in the mediation field that you want to pass to our audience. Sure. Uh, I, I think that it's, it's very important for the parties to bring a structured settlement broker to the mediation. Uh, again, especially when we're talking uh, about a large exposure or periodic payments. Brokers who attend mediation can listen to the other side's concerns and reflect them in proposals that are created on the spot. Brokers are very typically experienced in the law or in claims or in both. So this is another person who can bring their experience and knowledge to the table for the benefit of all the parties. Uh, Give the broker plenty of notice uh, of the location and the time of the mediation so that it can personally attend. Many mediators, and and myself included, uh, feel that when we want a, a greater knowledge of the financial dynamics of a settlement, Uh, We tend to talk to the structured settlement brokers. Uh, Like the mediator, the broker is motivated to get the case settled and can identify issues and and possible solutions. Well, I think that's true. And I think oftentimes, especially in those cases, uh, Teddy, when there's economic reports and life care plans, the brokers are very instrumental oftentimes in trying to get uh, some some 
measure around those those issues to, so that the settlement can take place. What what do you, Teddy? One final thought from you. What do you think is the uh, element of you? You'll hear from time to time where sometimes a mediator will say, or or the other side, or the defense attorney will say, "I don't want to bring a structured settlement broker to this meeting because they'll think there's a lot of money here uh, that might be paid." Have you have you heard that? And what's the ethics of that in trying to keep someone away? Well, I can tell you. Yes, I have heard it, and the answer is that. No structured settlement broker has ever made anybody pay more money than they wanted to pay. <laughs> exactly. So that is based on the information that Seth talked about, um, where the structured settlement brokers bring another pool of knowledge to help the parties come together, uh, and it doesn't cost anything. Um, it would, it's foolish to spurn that additional resource. And Seth, I, I'm sure from time to time you've heard that same comment about uh, it's going to, you know, indicate there's more money on the table than we want to indicate. But but haven't you also said that, uh, you know, a structured settlement broker can take a small amount of money and, and make use of it for the benefit of the plaintiff? And w- w- with their magic, make it look like a bigger amount. But I always find that comment to be rather amusing that there's the perception that there's a lot of money to be paid. You know what? Like we said earlier, put it on the table. Let's know what the problems are and deal with the problems as as they come. And I think we've just summed up the ethics of the process. Larry, I do want to tell our listeners that besides the ABA model uh, standards of conduct for uh, attorneys, there's also model standards of conduct for mediators. Additionally, the states uh, have codes of conduct. The American Bar Association maintains a database of uh, ethics opinions, which is searchable online, and you can also search for standards of conduct uh, for mediators for your state. The Boise State University Department of Public Policy and Administration maintains a website with a database of all of such codes of conduct. Well, that's good information, and our audience, I'm sure, will make use of it. I think to sum it up, though, Seth, what we're really talking about is disclosure. Around the ethics, it's always disclosure, credibility, honesty, and, and working you know, in good faith, and that's what it's about. That, yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And as, to, as soon as you start hiding something or not disclosing something, the settlement discussions will fall apart. Well, well said. And uh, Seth, if someone wanted to get in touch with you or, or your, your company, how would they do that? Uh, thank you. Um, my, my telephone number, again, in Southern California and Woodland Hills is area code 818-225-7756. I also have a website, www.ad j m e d i a t o r dot com that's a d j mediator and i do travel so if uh, people in other jurisdictions do have cases i would be happy to um go out to other jurisdictions other venues to to assist them with their matters well it's good to know and i think uh, that you've given them some good information to get in touch and teddy how would someone get in touch with you i'm in the beverly hills office of ringler associates i have a toll-free number 888 734 3910, and anybody can email me at tsnyder at ringlerassociates.com or reach us through our website, www.ringlerassociates.com. And you know, Teddy, that's we have a new website coming out too, which is really uh, an exciting thing for Ringler Associates. But you can reach any Ringler Associate on that website, ringlerassociates.com and uh, find uh, the services of a broker that might be helpful to you. And you can listen to these Ringler Radio shows by clicking the link on ringlerassociates.com or legaltalknetwork.com and be able to hear this uh, this show and many, many others. And uh, 
download to your iPod and hear Seth uh, as you walk around the, the park. So with that, Seth, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank Teddy, you for having me. Teddy, thank you again. Thanks, Larry. And uh, the rest of you out there, have a great day. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. In its sixth year on Legal Talk Network, with over a half a million listeners, Ringler Associates, where experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to all parties involved in physical injury claims. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential.